Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. If you're not careful, you will spend the whole, like, how many months or years it takes trying to make your new creative thing a successful business. And that'll be stressful. And then the day you wake up, and I had this with Shut Up It's Down, that you kind of, you've done some funding drive or secured some sponsorship deal, and the product is actually, it pays for itself. There's no feeling of like, ah, oh, you did it, let's go for a party. Right. No, because that's actually kind of when the work starts. Yeah. I was anxious before interviewing Quinn's. He's been one of my favorite tabletop creators for almost a decade now, and I feared the person I admired for all these years wouldn't hold up to actual meeting. Well, unsurprisingly, he exceeded my expectations, and as you'll hear, I had an absolute blast chatting with him. Hearing his respect for the people who make the games that we love and he reviews was a expected surprise. I believe it is his secret on why he is such a good reviewer. He then shared how he respected his audience as well, and it pulled back the curtain on his overall success. He shares how he found his voice for the channel and the podcast, and that is a challenge for all creators. Quinz is as insightful and kind as he is knowledgeable and clever. All right, enough gushing. But real quick, I finally found someone who can break down for me why people love manga so much. And it turns out it's a guy who reviews board games and RPGs. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Quince. This is Sean. And this is Navi. And together we're a couple of drakes, the creators of Court of Blades and Jed Bell. When we're not writing games, we're listening to Tabletop Talk. Top, 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 top. <laughs> Don't try that again. <laughs> when we're not writing games, we're listening to Tabletop Talk. Howdy friends, Craig here. My guest today is Quinton Smith. Quinn's is one of the founders of the Shut Up and Sit Down review website, YouTube channel, and podcast. Shut Up and Sit Down is, for me, the definitive source for board game reviews and insights, all with a dash of clever humor. Recently, he also launched a new channel, Quinn's Quest. He's been TTRPG curious for a few years now, and I noticed our hobby kind of seeping into his content. Now he's out of the board game closet and fully into RPGs. Quince, welcome to the third floor. Thank you so much, Craig. Very happy to be here. Always excited to talk about uh, how I get ideas from out of my cursed brain and onto the internet. <laughs> so 
Unfortunately, you're going to have to answer the question that you probably have answered a million times on uh, the millions of podcasts that you've been a part of. And that's kind of your origin story. So I'm going to frame it a little bit different. At one point, you knew nothing about role playing games, right? Had never seen the dice, never had a pen and a paper, never pretended to be somebody else. And it was put in front of you for the very first time. Can we go back there? Uh, we certainly can. Although I will flag that uh, I, I'm quite interested in the side of role playing that um, follows the thread of pretending to be someone else from when you are about four years old. Um, I'm a big proponent of pointing out the ways in which a hobby that can be quite vaunted and um, sort of uh, very technical is really just a continuation of the play we do as children and uh, staying permanently as as kids. Yeah, but my first um, exposure to RPGs was in my friendly local game store, the Fantastic Leisure Games in North London. And I arrived, I walked in and... Yeah, there were board games um, and RPGs as well. Um, but I just, what I couldn't grasp is that as somebody who'd been playing video games throughout the 90s, and actually my career would later start with me being a video game journalist for 10 years, um, I had no idea what was going on. Like, <laughs> there were about 150 board games in there. I hadn't heard of any of them. Um, and then the RPGs really uh, caught my attention as well because I was a big fan of books and I was a big fan of games. Uh-huh. And here you are telling me that somehow books and games can be combined into... I described it in another interview I was doing as like an almost vertigo from the sense of possibility here because a role-playing game source book, you know, is an opportunity to tell like a hundred stories in a whole world. And then here were a hundred different role-playing game source books. And back then when I was about 12 years old... I didn't know that many of them were bad and not necessarily (laughs) worthy of attention. But at the time, um, I felt a sense of really pure awe that that there were sort of seemingly an infinite number of stories. And yet there was also a barrier there because I didn't know how to role play. I didn't know how to use these books. I didn't know how to get my friends excited. And if anything, my career in tabletop has been like constantly trying to fix this, like, you know, fabric in the terror of my childhood that the, these games existed, but I couldn't quite get access to them. And now I have a career where my friends uh, all but are forced to sit down at the table with me. So what was your first game, right? So you come in here, you're perplexed and, and enamored by this. But at some point, you had a character sheet in front of you. Do you remember when that was? I must have been maybe 13 or 14. I didn't have a character sheet because the only way I could get role playing to the table was by GMing it. So I had a character sheet in front of me briefly before sliding it over to another 13-year-old opposite me. Um, I played Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition, and I was the GM for exactly one player. And I guided that player um, on a series of adventures in which I couldn't kill him because if you kill the one player in your one player RPG group, that's automatically a total party kill. And that's rough for a 13 plot armor. Yeah, no, absolutely. But um, now like playing role-playing games as an adult, um, sometimes I worry about how uh, sort of hard to be as a GM and how much danger to pin my stories. And one of my players made the excellent point that um, as a GM, you must never forget that the peril and the danger mostly exists in the head of your players. You're sort of trying to like create this this fiction that the plot armor doesn't exist. Um, right. And players will choose to believe that because it makes their characters cooler. No, I agree. I agree. All right. So you're 13, get to run a game. Obviously it got its hooks into you, right? You're now here a grown ass adult and, and you're still <laughs> playing these games. 
But as an adult, looking back at 13-year-old Quinn's, do you have a sense of what happened when you were first started engaging in this hobby that that allowed it to be a part of your life, you know, decades later? You know, actually, my experience with role-playing was a series of um, uh, false starts, really, because I tried to get a... That, that D&D game never... Believe it or not, me as a 13-year-old with no access to the internet tools that show you how to run D&D... I'll I'll admit it right here publicly uh, on your show. I was a bad GM, and I would continue to be a bad GM um, on and off for about fifteen years. I would honestly say that while I've run, I don't know, ten, eleven, twelve campaigns, it wouldn't and be it wouldn't be until I was maybe 32, 33, wow. running a game of Blades in the Dark that I I ran a campaign that I I think I would personally now truly say was good. So what happened? What happened? Was it the game? Was it experience? Like what What? what clicked? I think it's partially um, a game that was really strong and inspiring um, because I think that D&D is great, but it is a brand that I think mostly operates on a lot of nostalgia for, yep. um, you know, how the game, you know, this game that we've been playing for decades. I think what stuck out to me with Blades in the Dark is it was a game that was just good in and of itself. And the way that Blades in the Dark has captured the attention of the RPG community sort of like shows that that game has something special about it because it's not using an existing IP. It doesn't have a huge marketing budget. It just has a really uh, captivating setting and a great rule set. Um, But also, I think I had access, you know, when I was uh, like, you know, 20 years on um, from when I first picked up an RPG book, you have access to the internet. And the internet is an endless repository of tools for how to be a good GM. Um, and also, I think I was just a bit more grown up. I think, um, you know, more power to you if you're a GM who's a teenager. But I don't know. I like, obviously, there's no right way to run an RPG. But for the kind of games I wanted to run, which were sort of rich and dark and a little emotional, um, that's just my personal style as a GM. I think that I had to wait until I had maybe just a touch more life experience under my belt, not just of, you know, feelings I'd had and therapy I've done, but like books I've read. That's super interesting to me, the style of game that you enjoy, Quince. Do you have a sense of why that is? Why are you drawn to that style of play? I don't know if I can answer that any, but well, I suppose I should have a crack at it, shouldn't I? Um, I think I'm just aping the kinds of, from the way I run a game, I want it to be as similar as possible to the kind of media that inspires me. Okay. And for me, like, I do like fantasy novels, but only ones that are kind of either witty or arch or a little special. I'm thinking about uh, The Lies of Locke Lamora, if your fans mm-hmm. have read that. I think, like, um, also, like, I'm a fan of uh, CRPGs, the video game genre, but the ones that I love aren't necessarily your Baldur's Gate 3s. It's, you know, it's your Disco Elysiums. It's stuff that's <laughs> nice. a little more literary, I would say, yep. a little more unexpected. Um, and certainly when I ran Blades in the Dark, um, I the heists were not, you know, like I know people who run Blades. And it's all about, you know, toppling governments or taking over a whole district. It's like, no, you know, my campaigns were like, maybe you rob a jewelry store and it's the worst, most tense sequence in your entire life. <laughs> so question for you. I want to transition now out of your gamer origin story and and talk about the beginnings of the channel. Um, so again, similar situation, damn thing does not exist. No thought in your mind of starting a YouTube channel. 
uh, devoted to board games. Can we go the day before that that <laughs> idea pops in the head? Right. Yeah. So what le- what led up to the beginnings of this? Where's the acorn? Um, so myself and my friend Paul Dean were living in London. We were playing a lot of board games together. We were both working as professional video game journalists, and we were both struck by how good board games were, even in 2011, when the quality of the market was well. I say it's lower than it is now. I mean, some of the greatest board games of all time had been released before 2011. I'm thinking here about Ryan Knizia classics like Tigers and Euphrates or Uwe Rosenberg's Agricola. Um, and uh, or games like Skull, Log, Cockroach, Poker. Um, great little card games. Um, and so myself and Paul were, was just really struck by, as people who were being paid and earning our money by reviewing video games, many of which were awful. Um, <laughs> and yet there was a market, the people were paying us, you know, 160 pounds to write 800 words on Lemony Snicket's unfortunate series of events, the video game. Um, and yet there were board games that were like actual, if not masterpieces, the nearest damn it. And there was no coverage of that whatsoever. And that struck us as a gap in the market. Yeah. But also just a grave injustice. Um, <laughs> and we started Shut Up and Sit Down, not really with an intention of creating a business, but just with an intention of like, Hey, we could make, uh, we also were both interested in, um, uh, creating uh, a sort of video show. We were really inspired by a Scottish, um, sort of like web series called Consolvania, which was put together, um, in, at least in part by, uh, uh, Scottish um, comic Rab Florence, who would go on to get Consolvania picked up by um, BBC Scotland mm. um, and do a whole sitcom and all kinds of um, brilliant stuff. Uh, Rab Florence is a very talented guy and a big proponent of board games as well, actually. But we thought, you know, we'll take Consolvania's like sort of uh, format and then turn that into a show because Consolvania was never about making money, even though it did ultimately get picked up by the BBC. It was just a couple of friends goofing around with a camcorder. And we thought it just looked like they were having a lot of fun. And we thought we would do that as well. And maybe tell some people about board games along the way. And then sort of while we were talking, I think Paul said to me something quite, uh, something that sticks in my head, which was like, I was talking about maybe doing this project. And he said to me, I think, um, okay, we can do this on one condition. And that condition is that we do it. Like neither of us wanted it to be a project that was like, especially with video where like, you know, you have to write a script and do all these filming days and then edit it and release it. And then you have to do that over and over and over again until you've got a series. Um, neither of us were interested in that being one of the, the archetypal uh, creative projects that fizzles out along the way. We were going to see this project through to its completion. That was something we both agreed before we um, sat down to write the first page of the first script. Once the first time you regretted that decision. <laughs> um wow what a great question um i will i don't i truly don't know the answer to that i mean probably the the first time i regretted that decision is when um my pirated copy of the sony vegas editing software crashed for the second time in one evening and uh lost you know half an hour of work um if people get annoyed at like programs like adobe premiere or davinci crashing now you have no idea how bad it was (laughs) Uh, 13 so years true. ago it's it was so uh, anyway yeah so that's there's tense. definitely some it was regret like, there it was like a, it was like 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 in a movie you're on your edge and you hit save and just yeah oh yeah you're like watching the like export bar fill up and you're not walking away from your desk even though it takes like 45 minutes because it could die at any minute it's oh, like God. you know watching the fuse of a bomb tick down um Yes. Yeah, so, but then um, more candidly, uh, I think there's, there's definitely a point um, which, and this is very uh, world's tiniest violin, um, you know, like 
I'm not expecting people to feel sad for me, but it is a fact of the creative process that for the first like five years of Shut Up and Sit Down's existence, all the whole team wanted to do was to make it sustainable, to be bringing in right. enough money, primarily from donations, um, that we could officially say this was a, f- a functional business in our job rather than something we're all desperately trying to make work in our free time. And uh, something I'm trying to avoid with Quinn's Quest, but that I do feel coming up with a new product that also I'm trying to make financially sustainable is if you're not careful, you will spend the whole, like how many months or years it takes trying to make your new creative thing a successful business. And that'll be stressful. And then the day you wake up, and I had this with Shut Up and Sit Down, that you kind of, you've done some funding drive or secured some sponsorship deal and the product is actually, it pays for itself. There's no feeling of like, ah, oh, you did it. Let's go for a party. Right. No, because that's actually kind of when the work starts. Yeah. Um, and then it's kind of like, it, it, the, I want to compare it to is you, the listeners of your show will probably know the feeling of like, you know, when you, you get a, you land a new job and you're really excited and then, but you know, your first day or week or month of that job is you arriving at the job. And actually it's just incredibly stressful because you don't know how anything works. Um, that, you know, if you're not careful, that means that your whole arc of a creative project will never have a day where you can truly celebrate. Um, and I don't know exactly how you got to talking to me about this, but I'm thinking about it a lot now because the launch of Quinn's Quest is really stressful. Yeah. And all my friends are like wanting me to celebrate. And I'm like, I just look like the saddest successful man in the world <laughs> being like. Are you putting pressure on yourself? What, what, do, what do you think's driving that? What? Oh, gosh. Why can't uh, you find joy in this yet? Uh, I find a lot of joy. I'm very aware that it's the, um, this is, I, I've worked a lot of crappy jobs. I've sold shoes. I've been a bartender. I was a construction worker on an arts festival for a while. I was bad at all of these jobs, to, to be clear. <laughs> but it gave me enough of a taste of like, ah, this is this is work. This is life inside capitalism. This seems fucking awful. Um, that I know how privileged I am. But at the same time, I am a perfectionist and I am aware that I think I owe my, and I owe my career to the fact that um, I always want my work to be better than whatever it was a month before. I don't, I think that's mm-hmm. an impossible, you know, aim for a creator, but also I want my work to successfully honor the games that people are making. And as much, you know, delight as people take from the fact that a shut up and sit down review might have me falling in a river or buying a stupid costume or whatever. Um, I haven't fallen in a river for a very long time. I should probably do it again. Um, But however much work we put into a review, we're putting a fraction of a fraction as much work as goes into the games we are actually covering. And it just feels like the honorable, respectful thing to do to not screw that up and to make sure that you are right about the game. And if anything, I think that's where the real source of stress in my career comes from is that... um, uh, people will kind of forgive a script that might not be as funny or as witty or as concise as your previous script. But if you are wrong about a game <laughs> in the popular opinion, um, that people do not forgive that. And it only takes a few of those for your reputation to be sh- like shot in the shot in the gut. Um, and what gives me real anxiety in my job is that sometimes you can be right and still get bitten. Um, and yeah. I've, I've talked a bit about this on Shut Up and Sit Down, but, um, the review of that that really stands out that I can now talk about with distance and and uh, also knowing I was right is the social deduction game Blood on the Clock Tower, okay. which um, is now a success story. I know that there are groups who've played hundreds of games of it and adore it to pieces. Um, it's, it's incredibly popular in China, actually, as well as Australia, America, Europe. Um, the people who love that game absolutely love it and consider it like, you know, it's a it's a 
what's the word? Like it's a game that becomes an entire hobby by itself for people based wow. on its strength and depth. But when I reviewed it, um, people d- didn't see it as significantly different from Werewolf. And, um, dis- and what hurt was me really opening my heart and doing my level best to say, this is maybe my favorite board game in existence right now. Um, and really like ripping open my ribcage to be like, I'm going to put all of my emotion into this script. And then to have your audience on mass go, wow, you really fucked that up. You are wow. uh, like this, like the, you're telling us this is great. No, this isn't great. And of course they hadn't played it because, uh, and if there was a mistake of the review, it's that we coincided that review to launch with the blood and the cocktail Kickstarter because we believed in the game enough and we had played it that we were like, well, let's just give the Kickstarter a boost to help an amazing game reach more people. That meant our audience hadn't played it. So the comments didn't have a sufficient groundswell of people going, yeah, you're totally right. I played this at my friend's house yesterday. It was awesome. Um, Instead, we had a bunch of people who hadn't played it, essentially doubting my degree of hyperbaton. And uh, that knocks my confidence back for like nine months, 12 months. Wow. But like, I don't know. It's, um, it's hard to overstate how weird this job is and how yeah. uh, the areas in which it can trigger uh, an anxious person like me's um, feel bad moments. Do you, have you built up any type of, of protection for yourself to be able to handle that? Because it's, it's, you know, it's, I tell people this all the time. Like if you, if you are consuming something that someone's creating, tell them, tell them that mm. you love it because the people that don't love it, they're ta- they're making sure that you know that. <laughs> and there's this silent group out there that are like, this is really good. Um, and, and, and it's so easy to go, God, I love this. And then not do anything, but you hate something and you're going to make sure everybody, especially the creator knows it. And so how do you protect yourself from from getting a, a skewed perception of that and, and allowing those types of dwellers to to impact you um, or, or, or don't you? You you do build up a protection. I just want to add to your point as well, because I do think it's a great idea to tell your favorite creators that um, that you enjoy their work. I also think if if they have a Patreon or a, a, a co.fi coffee, I don't know how to pronounce that. <laughs> Um, kick him some money because like, that is such a, receiving a compliment is one thing, but like receiving $5 in your bank account at just the right time can really give you the strength to keep going. And um, I'm, I owe my entire career to, uh, to donations and Patreons and whatnot and crowdfunding. And I try and support a bunch of creators I like as well. And I think that's honestly the best, most sustainable, healthiest way for the internet to work. Um, but in terms of armor, I think you, oh God, I don't, I don't know. Um, I work with a, uh, on my other channel, People Make Games, which does documentaries about games and play. And I love that job to pieces. Um, we, my colleague had the, just the darkest uh, sort of like half joke, but half fact, which was that he knew a video was of his was doing well when comments would appear on our videos being mean about his appearance because that meant that the youtube algorithm was showing his content to people who'd never seen him before oh that's interesting so yeah and so that was his side of like so whenever he would get just the just the meanest shittiest comment talking about how he looks and by the way handsome man great hair (laughs) nothing to no concern in that department um 
but whenever someone would just have a little barbed comment about uh, his presentation, he'd be like, great, <laughs> everything is working as planned. Isn't that something? Um, I, yeah, but also, I mean, I'm well aware that like, we're also two dudes working on the internet. Like to be a woman on the internet publicly I is so much worse. It's, it's inconceivably worse. Um, but in terms of armor, I don't know. A content creator uh, who's much more successful than I was once described it as like a natural kind of callus, uh, like a suit of armor that builds up over yep. time. Um, but he says that like a suit of armor, um, it means that 99% of what you read will not get through. But then just every so often, um, usually for me, it's a comment that says something I was insecure about anyway. Like if I'm thinking, if I'm producing a video being like, oh, I don't really think I'd express this point well. And a comment refers to that. That is like, you know, like in uh, medieval suits of armor, the armpit was a good place to get yep. a knife in. Like that's my armpit of like, oh, yeah, you got me. But then most of the time you won't feel anything. What is shitty though is um, that callus you build up protects you from compliments as well. It does. Uh, yeah. So people like receiving a nice word is great um, and people should do it. People should be kind on the internet. Um, it's what, you know, perpetuates and generates the content that you love is kindness. Um, but it's garbage to receive like 50 compliments in a morning and be like, I and just, I can't read or process any of it. Yeah, exactly. It yeah. just, n- none of it goes in. Yep. 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 We need help, Quince. We need help. <laughs> <laughs> Most of you listeners know how much I love the horror game Shiver and everything else coming from the brothers over at Parable Games. They are friends of the show and they are shaking things up. At the time this episode drops, they have eight new games on Kickstarter bundled together for Zine Quest. One is a new system called All Aboard, an OSR-style rule set for playing stories where characters are linked together by a vessel. This powers the What Lurks trilogy, each one of which focuses on a different vehicle and setting. There's a social deduction game called Someone in the Tavern is a Fucking Mimic. They've also got Squeeze, a game full of subterranean terror with spiky stalactite D4s, a tongue-in-cheek haunted house game, and a house generator. There's Scrappy Slimes, Slimes acting as dungeon crash test dummies, all powered by incompetence, and Christmas Crisis, a quick one-page festive RPG to save Christmas. I'm a patron of theirs, and these are the games we've received as rewards, and I can't wait to get them in print. Check out the Kickstarter using the link in the show notes. So something that, um, well, let me let me do as I preach. I love your shit, man. Um, I have, I have enjoyed your channel for years now. My wallet has not, um, but, (laughs) but I really have. And one of the things that, um, I find inspiring, uh, watching you is, is your channel, your podcast, even when you're not on it has a a very distinct voice. Mm. Um, I, you know, I can tell where it's coming from and, as someone who, you know, goes through that from a creative thing on my channel and on my podcast and stuff, I'm really curious, when do you feel like you got that voice where, where you just kind of like, this is, this is who, this is who I am and who I'm going to present as, um, on, in my content. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think I had a different voice as a video game journalist than I did, uh, on video. Um, and I kind of developed a very like arch kind of cool 
uh, a quite mean voice as a video game journalist that was very hip. And uh, I, with board games, that didn't really fit. And it's kind of annoying because as a journalist, one of the worst phases of your career um, as an op-ed writer or a reviewer is when you haven't found your voice yet. Um, then everything you write just is a grind and is like, it doesn't come out. Um, but then when you transition to video, uh, I found there was a little bit of that again, because learning to present is a whole different skill. Um, you, I, I don't know, for me being like, I don't know, arch over text works, but on video, eventually I figured out that turns out people like watching someone who's smiling and having fun. As opposed to, I mean, like there, there are plenty of content creators out there who are able to be mean on video. I'm not that person. Um, I don't necessarily know uh, exactly when I found the voice, but I have been thinking recently about how an element of Shut Up Zidane's voice that was almost there from the beginning and we really liked, so we really leaned into, is just like we are, we were the most, you know, glowing, effusive, passionate proponents of board games in the world. We want to spread this love of tabletop to as far as we could all over the planet. However, that did not at any point stop us from making fun of board games and how stupid they are and how nerdy they are and how embarrassing they are. Um, and you know, this is, it makes sense to me because Britain has a long history with insincerity and satire. Um, but I don't know. It's like, if you're seeing these, well, um, uh, my wife has a line that I like, which is, um, you know, to make fun of something really, really, really well, you have to love it. Oh, because yeah. only by loving something do you expose yourself to so much of it that you can really see what's stupid about it. Yeah. Um, but also, like, board games are just transparently weird. Like, you show me a table of people playing a Vital Lacerda game and, and tell me that that game is not demented. Like... <laughs> right. I don't know. It just clicked for us. The humor, was that on purpose? Was it just who you are? Um, it's a big component. It's been a component for a long time. Or is it just a function of this is who we are and we're having fun? Or was that a deliberate? Because it, it was it was something that was very differentiating, I think, for you. Yeah, well, um, it is who we are. Um, it's a couple of things. Like, I think um, a, a phrase that comes back in my work often is the line, um, good work is done by talented people having fun together. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's true of, you know, everything from TVs to music to YouTube niche board game shows. Um, but also in terms of the authors that I really like, like, um, uh, Martin Amos just passed away recently. Um, but, uh, him and, uh, and then when I was very young, when I was a teenager and, uh, a deeply not a feminist yet, uh, I really liked Hunter S. Thompson. Um, but some of those two authors have in common, um, or a lot of my favorite fantasy authors, honestly, is that humor isn't something you stop telling a story or in our case, doing a review to deliver. Mm-hmm. Humor is something that can exist as an additional layer completely concurrently with what you're doing. So with Shut Up and Sit, like if I want to make an analogy of like a board game is slow, if I want to... I can I can do that just as fast by comparing. I obviously can't come up with a joke on the fly now because it's it's eight thirty on a Friday and I'm tired. But Get your um, shit together. Yeah, I know. I, I'm I'm not. I'm a mess. Um, but you know, it's easy to be funny about how slow a game feels. It's as easy to do that as it is to talk about that it's slow for these reasons. Yep. Um, and the the kernel of Shut Up Sit Down and then also Quinn's Quest is that um, in our reviews, while they are sometimes long, we want to respect your time. And the way that we respect your time of you choosing to sit down and watch a bunch of British people nerd out about something in the internet is, we're, we're going to give you the best damn review of this 
ever. We're going to tell you what it feels like to play, not just how it plays. Yeah. But also, why can't we make you laugh as well? Like, yeah. and I think, you know, humor is also what Paul and I and Matt, who joined the site, and now Tom, like all of us owe our careers to being able to be funny as well. Um, uh, I don't know. It's What is life without laughter, Craig? Uh, hey, it's me. Um, I'm interrupting this episode, and I hope you're enjoying it, and I bet you're anxious to hear the rest. But before we jump back, I need a favor. Do you know someone who might enjoy this episode? Can you shoot them a quick message or maybe even send them a link to it? Listeners sharing this podcast was the primary reason we almost doubled our audience last year. Also, would you like to see and hear these games in action? Go to the Third Floor Wars YouTube channel and Twitch stream. Our actual plays combine compelling role-playing, character-driven action, and system tutorials. We create great stories while lifting the hood and showcasing the game mechanics. Links to both are in the show notes. Okay, last thing, and I mean it. Have you rated this podcast on your pod platform yet? Maybe even written a short review? It is a simple way for you to be even more awesome than you already are. Okay, now I'm done. Let's jump back and listen to the rest of this episode. We now understand the origins of Shut Up and Sit Down. We can see the progress of that, right? What I'd love to get a sense of is the day before Quinn's Quest. (laughs) Has this been something that has been needling you? Or did you wake up one morning and go, I think I want to to, to kind of veer off, because as I mentioned in the intro, you have been dancing with doing RPGs on <laughs> Shut Up and Sit Down, right? Um, yeah. And it's had a huge impact. But at some point you decide I'm going to do it. Just me. And devoted to RPGs. And I want to get a sense of where the hell that idea come from. Oh, it's a nuts idea. Like, certainly my team at Shut Up and Sit Down were like, uh, are you sure about this? Because, <laughs> you know, like, you recently on, on Shut Up and Sit Down, I did some RPG coverage recently. I did the review of Spire. I did a review of Alice is Missing. And I did a guide to getting into role-playing games. And all mm-hmm. that traffic did really well. There was no sensible reason for me to go off and, uh, and spin it off and start a new YouTube channel from zero subscribers, which is... Just home from zero subscribers, a prospect that I only really clocked how dumb and intimidating that is about four days out from the channel launching. Um, So I didn't have a good reason to start it separately, but I did have a bad reason, which is I knew it would fill me with dread. Uh, I knew that that is half a joke answer, but it is half sincere. Um, I've been at Shut Up and Sit Down for 12 years, right? And that's kind of... Doing anything creatively for 12 years, whether you're, you know, working in the same bar or, you know, like writing the same column in a newspaper. um, I personally don't think that's necessarily the way to get your best work out of you, because I think creativity comes from constraints, first of all. Like, um, you know, why does Shut Up, It's It Down film outdoors a lot and always change its camera angles? It's yeah, it gives it gives the videos a weird color and a unique texture, but it's because unlike a lot of Americans, we don't have a studio. So like we have, why do we film outside? Cause it's better than you seeing the same shitty corner of our flat for the 10th time. <laughs> um, and you know, when you run a business for a long time, you don't have many constraints anymore. You have a really nice workflow. And 
I don't know when exactly a groove becomes a rut because I don't think I was in a rut with Shut Up and Sit Down, but I do think that I was going to produce not necessarily better work by myself. Certainly that's not the case because I think a lot of my best work comes from collaboration, but I would produce different work. Interesting. And I think producing uh, different work combined with exclusively covering RPGs um, would just, it would kind of be like a new creative chapter for me. And uh, I was just really excited to what that new chapter would mean. Turns out it means a variety of stuff that predominantly uh, includes a really bizarre 1989 aesthetic uh, for Quinn's Quest, where the YouTube channel has this weird wrapper that you are watching an abandoned VHS tape from 30 years ago. But like that in and of itself is actually paying dividends because I know you haven't necessarily asked about this, but I'm too excited. I'm going to talk about it. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know exactly where the idea to set Quinn's Quest in 1989 came from. Um, but I do know that part of it is because I love the history of tabletop role-playing games. Mm-hmm. Tabletop role-playing games in the 80s have a very rich, weird, kind of nascent beginning of an art form thing where everything's like gloopy and malformed. And if you read something like um, Stu Horvath's uh, recent great book, uh, Tunnels, Aliens and Holes in the Ground, I think it's called, I was just cracking up reading that book as he described some of the experiments of RPGs in the 80s and 90s. Um, but also, like, I'm like, okay, but I, I, the 1989 thing came from like, well, I really like um, uh, the presentation from um, Jonathan Frakes in Beyond Belief, Fact or Fiction, um, which is a weird deep cut. I like Garth Marenghi, which is a British comedy show that's also set in the 80s. Um, And then I started realizing like, okay, well, if I really want to set the show in 1989, even though I'm reviewing modern games, what does that mean when I have to talk about the Patreon? What does that mean when I get YouTube comments? What does that mean when I have to start talking about PDFs? And I realized that while I'd written myself into a corner, writing myself out of that corner by time to interpret like, what does a man from 1989 think a YouTube comment is? I started (laughs) to have fun with that. And that kind of takes you to the answer. It's a really long way around, but that takes you to the answer of your question, which is I wouldn't be trying to answer these unanswerable questions if I'd stayed with Shut Up and Sit Down. Also, I wouldn't have to. I would have been comfortable and making content that made sense to everybody. Instead, I'm making content that barely makes sense. And I'm I'm not going to say happier. Certainly, I'm more stressed. But I, I do feel there's maybe a little glimmer of if not magic, then weirdness in my work that I am really happy to see come back. So, Quinn, as I talk to a lot of creators, one of the things that seems to come up a lot is I, I decided to make this because it wasn't there. Yes. It wasn't out there, right? Um, it's where this podcast came from. I was I was getting into, you know, tabletop gaming. I wanted to understand and I was fascinated, like, how how do you make this shit? Like, where, where how does this come together, right? Yeah, that's and, a really great question, especially when it comes to board games. Yeah. And, that, and, and I was listening to podcast after podcast and I, and nobody was asking those questions or I would hear a glimmer of that in a podcast and the host wouldn't follow up and dig into it. Cause like, <laughs> Oh my God, he just said the most, you know, she said the most interesting thing and you moved on to your next question. Did that happen here with Quinn's quest? Was there a situation, is this a situation where you were like this, there's something missing in the coverage of these games and I, and it, it's not out there and I think I need to do it. Yeah, actually, um, that's exactly what happened. I think that tabletop role-playing games in 2024 are 
if anything, like slightly beyond where board games were in 2011, when we started Shut Up and Sit Down, which was, um, I used the word injustice before, but it just didn't seem fair that these board games were so damn good. And like, there were plenty of good content creators and you know, certainly before and after we launched Shut Up and Sit Down, I was a big fan of watching Tom Vassell's work on the Dice Tower. Man's a deeply passionate guy who taught me a bunch of great stuff about a bunch of great games. Um, but all the same, like, I felt that uh, Paul and I had cut my teeth, and Matt as well when he joined, um, and t- Tom Brewster, who's now the editor of the site, also cut his teeth doing music journalism um, at university. And... All of us as professional journalists felt that we could bring, (laughs) it's funny to use the word professionalism because Shut Up and Sit Down as a brand is the least professional, most (laughs) awkward, like goofy show. But we just felt that we could um, condense more criticism and entertainment at the same time into reviews um, than people were being served with. We could be, you know, more um, passionate, or if not more passionate, then more stupidly dressed than other uh, board game reviewers. But Quinn's Quest is similar. Right now, I think the TTRPG space is... Uh, I When I started Shut Up Is Down, I talked a lot about how we were in a board game golden age and people didn't know it. I think people kind of... They kind of know now that we're in an RPG golden age with like, you know, shows like Critical Role booking out um, stadiums uh, all around the world. But also, that golden age, is it's not... We're in an age, a resurgence of RPGs where D&D is really popular again um, and actual play is booming and create this fantastic new form of entertainment. But um, I do think we're in an age of RPG games that are better than they've ever been, but I don't think there is a reviewer who is shining a light on games that aren't D&D who has a platform as big as me and who's been reviewing for as long as I have. And sure enough, like... I was really delighted that now, uh, at the time of recording, we've launched just the first review on Quinn's Quest, but it is now up to like, I think 100,000 views and we've sold out the RPG and people are all paying attention to an RPG that was not getting that much attention beforehand. And we're just getting started. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, the kind of, there are a bunch of really great reviewers in the TTRPG space. I don't think this is the same as when I started Shut Up and Sit Down and, um, I was trying to bring a level of professionalism to the reviews. I think there is a really high level of professionalism to reviews on TTRPGs, but I don't think that there are people who have as big of a platform as me. And right. I'm just here really to to shift some product and get some get some attention to TTRPG designers who desperately, desperately need it. Fast forward two years from now. <laughs> oh no. I, I trick you into coming back on the show. Yeah. Um there's an easy answer to this, and I and I don't think you're gonna give it to me. <laughs> How are you going to measure whether two years from now this was a success or not? And the easy answer is number of views and number of subscribers and so on and so forth. But I get a sense from you, Quinn, that that's not how you would measure it. Do you have a sense of kind of what are the goalposts that that you're that you're running towards? Um, here's what I wish the answer was. Um, here's what a more well-adjusted man who'd done more therapy <laughs> than I have would say. Um, Quinn's Quest is already a success because already I've got, you know, um, uh, several hundred people supporting me on Patreon. I am getting views that is selling games um, and people are being very kind in the comments. And most importantly, I've taken this thing that I am currently, just right now, more passionate about than anything in the world, which is tabletop role-playing games. Those those evenings with my friends where they gather on my table and I we tell a story together um, are just where my heart is right now. And right now I'm connecting to the scene better. I'm helping to sell games that I think are truly great. It is already a success. Yeah. But that's not my my answer. Honestly, like, 
I think, I mean, what I have to assume is that this stage of my career, and this is sort of depressing to admit, but I have to admit that this career will feel like the, in what, like in two years or five years, um, like my board game career did, or like my video game career did before that, where I just kind of constantly strive for the next thing. And then I'm always thinking about the next thing. What's the next game? What's the next review? How am I going to, uh, you know, uh, pump this script up a little bit? How am I going to approach this game? What new feature do I need to do? And then in six, seven years, I'll turn around and I'll be tired or bored or distracted and uh, I'll need to move on to the next thing. And Mm -hmm. I do have like a long-term career plan that at some point, as I continue going through different genres of games, I will arrive at sports eventually and just and bring all of my like game audience that I've amassed like a Rolling Stone over 30 or 40 years into me talking about like hockey or rugby or something. I don't know. Formula One, if it's still going. Um, so yeah, I, I think I, for real, if we're talking about the creative process, I think I do have a problem of like, I'm always moving and there's just not a ton of room in my career to be like, ah, I did it. It's like, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't done it in 30 years or what, like 22 years so far. I don't know if I'll ever do it, but hopefully at some point I'll retire and then Maybe I'll feel some peace. Or maybe I'll just be (laughs) sad that I'm not still making stuff. I don't know. This is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content that you're listening to right now for free. That pitch man explains by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we refuse to interrupt your episode of Tabletop Talk with such time-wasting pleas. We pledge never to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month because supporting content creators keeps the content coming. Even if there is a link in the show's description, and there is. We don't ask you to click it and become a patron. We don't waste time rambling about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting episodes without ad breaks like this, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode knowing Tabletop Talk, despite being supported by its patrons, won't engage in such blatant appeals for support. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
So, Quince, this next segment um, is uh, what I've come to call What Are You Grooving On? And it used to be just like the side thing that I would mention and bring up. It's now, uh, my listeners now, it's become a favorite segment. The <laughs> idea is, is that you are spending all of this time creating, right? But do you also consume? I do. And the two inform each other, which I find very, very interesting. So what have you recently played, watched? It, that just got its hooks into you the way you hope your content does for somebody else. Uh, is there a game you can't stop thinking about or something you've been watching that like won't get out of your head? I have an immediate answer for this, um, which I don't know if it's been informing the work I do, but I do think it's just great. Um, so Shonen Jump, which is the, do you know about this? You're, no. you're pulling a nice face, which lets me uh, talk about this. So Shonen Jump is uh, a magazine of manga in Japan. It's like, you know, it's it's a comic book, right? But okay. in Japan, um, comics work a little differently and you get this huge, like three finger thick omnibus, which has like the next issue of about 40 comics. Anyway, they have in recent years launched an app, um, which is a website. You can subscribe to it and it is absurdly cheap. It is like <laughs> something like $2 a month. Okay. And you get access to all Shonen Jump issues of all their manga, which means I have been reading hundreds of issues of Chainsaw Man, of Spy X Family, of, oh God, let me double check and get this right. Uh, yep, that's correct. Um, <laughs> of Sakamoto Days, of Dr. Stone. Um, and, you know, earlier I was saying um, that uh, comedy is not, if this relates to my work in any way, um, it's... You know, this idea that comedy is not um, a separate genre to a story. It's something that I, I always love, like pipes on top, like icing. Yeah. Um, these stories are always, you know, they're kind of formulaic because it's manga and they, they have like <laughs> arcs that they repeat and lozenge over and over and over again, like sucking on hard candy. But um, it's the, the storytelling that they do is so fresh, so different, so weird, so funny. Um, it's just, I just, I know this is gonna sound like an advert, but I just can't believe it. It's $2 a month. I get access to all the manga I can read. This is interesting for me. I'm a comic book geek. Okay. Long before I knew tabletop games existed, I read comic books mm. uh, and I still love comic books. Um, so I, 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 I don't buy them anymore, but you don't have to buy comic books anymore. They're everywhere. Right. Right. Um, I have yet to fully understand manga now there's there's some japanese animation that like princess mononoke is one of my top 10 movies of all time not i just, love the stars of princess mononoke um oh i just uh. it's the whole thing the whole thing um <laughs> no incidentally uh pro tip it's not it is a lot darker than you remember i started watching it with my 10 year old like honey I, I want to sit down with you i want to show you some, uh, like an important movie i started watching it going yeah we're not going to watch that yet <laughs> So I watch it, and they're like, "Oh, this is great!" And you go, "You know, no, it's actually yeah. over. That's the end of the movie. It's fifteen minutes long." I forgot about the beheadings. I forgot about wow. the beheadings. Fun fact: uh, for my honeymoon, I actually went to uh, Yakushima Island, which is what Princess, which is the, the Japanese rainforest that Princess Mononoke is based on. Yeah. Uh, let me tell you, IRL hiking in those trails. There's a lot more leeches than there are in that movie. Um, oh my god. So, but uh, anyway, I'm not going to skeeve your audience out by talking about leeches anymore. Um, oh, sugar, I was going to say something based on you talking about Princess Mononoke. Um, oh, yeah, no. So, so you've never found your way into manga at all. I really haven't. And it is one of those things where it's a me problem because obviously there is something there because it, I mean, there the 
passion that's behind that. And it sounds like you're tapped into that. Help me out here. What what would I find if I if I put in the time and effort? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I'm going to give you one suggestion before I wax lyrical about manga in general, um, uh, which if you're if you have audience members who really love manga, they are going to go spare listening to me suggest this because there are obviously countless legendary manga. They're going to be like, you know, you should suggest Akira. I don't know. Um, so just take on concrete. Uh, but no, I'm going to, the thing that actually got me into manga was a slice of life comic called Maison Okoku, which is a long running story that does mercifully end, um, which is about a, uh, a boy who's maybe like 15 who moves into a, or moves into a guest house, um, which is run by this beautiful widow, um, who is probably about 22. So like, a sexy but not insurmountable age gap. However, this boy right. is at school. Um, and also living in the guest house are a bunch of other people who are broke and who are a colorful cast of characters. Most of them drink too much and are perverts. Um, but what you get over about 100 issues is this amazing slow burn romance where essentially both of them are in love with each other, but um, uh, the housekeeper won't go forward with this until she's kind of done grieving her husband and he can't proceed with this until he's basically become a man. Right. And you have this like five years long, gorgeous slow burn romance. However, the author Rumiko Takahashi is so, so, so funny. Um, (laughs) And if, if there's one thing I would say to you that you're missing out from manga, it is um, manga has such like ineffable, gorgeous sense of comic timing and expression. Like, you know how in the, I don't know, this is me now doing um, uh, Western sort of like funnies comics dirty, but you know, like um, if you, if you're a fan of Western, you know, comics, like, I don't know, Calvin and Hobbes or whatever, often they will be like, the joke will be um, it's sort of like a, a four panel, like setup, 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 subversion. Maybe put a button on the end of the joke. If it's a Sunday strip. Um, what manga is so good at is just from one panel to another, a tiny fragment of like life of someone being annoyed at something someone has said or someone being a little late to react or whatever. But by using expressions and timing and presentation, um, those tiny little moments of, of hey, being a human is difficult, um, like are, are embedded throughout the story like, like chocolate chip like chocolate chips in a cookie and they don't slow the story down. They they Mm. never are. Well, I mean, often there are interminably long, like comic (laughs) besides in manga, but generally when you're on the A plot, um, you, I don't know. It's, it's just studded with human experience is how I would, how I would describe manga. It's just this command of, of, of the subtleties of, of human expression. I don't know. I honestly don't read a lot of manga. I'm just hooked on Shonen Jump right now. I, I hope that the manga fans listening to this, because honestly, I have never waxed lyrical about manga on it on any public platform ever. So I'll be really interested. Please, if there are comments from manga fans in the audience <laughs> listening to this, if they comment, do post them along to me, because I'm interested as to whether I did a I good or bad job describing this medium to you. <laughs> so, Quince, there is, uh, there's a lot of really, really cool things to do on a Friday night. Um, but somehow <laughs> you got stuck uh, talking to me, and I want you to know how much I appreciate it. This was a blast. Are you kidding? This was uh, this was a really fun interview. I'm sort I'm of just glad. coming out of like the um, it took me, uh, you know, like when cats climb into trees and you can't pull them down. 
Um, that's what I've been like for the week following Quinn's Quest, where I, I just was truly through so full of so much um, stress from running up to the launch and getting everything ready, and then just fear. Um, and I'm, I'm, st- and it's only like yesterday that I, the cat, have started to come down from the tree and and chill out. And actually, doing this on a Friday night has been a pretty relaxed way to uh, to continue um, just chilling out, just relaxing. That makes me very happy. For those of you listening, this is the end. You made it. And I appreciate you doing that. Take care. Thank you very much, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Subscribe to Tabletop Talk and share it with your friends. Check out our content on YouTube and Twitch. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and stay updated on everything coming from Third Floor. All the links are in the show notes. Take care, Floorheads. But now he's fully outside of the board game closet and need. Oh, I fucked that up. <laughs> that was so classy and professional. That was you have a great <laughs> voice for this. Oh, thank you. So um, normally I do a whole segment on this, but uh, I know we're we're a little constrained for time, and I really no. Want I, to be I actually, I'd love to. Do, I'd love to give you fifteen more minutes if we could, Craig, because uh, I would love that if you got that, well, it. Well, I, I really, honestly, I um, uh, I, I, tr- I truly. You were talking about being kind earlier. Uh, I've done a lot of interviews over the last two weeks. Um, I think in terms of craft, you're the best interviewer I've had in in, in two weeks. So, wow, no, you, you have a great tonality. Made me feel really comfortable. Really good questions. Um, good. Yeah, this is a joy. Well, you know how to make a guy's day. Thanks, man. <laughs> um, all right, so let me figure yeah, out. Sorry, Let's now make... you were gearing up to the end, and now yeah, I've given you, you, you more. You just rope. you love sabotaging me. I figured that out already. <laughs> um, I'm just gonna, right, I'm so going I'm gonna to do my one second. Yeah, please. You still here? Wow. Um, well, the episode is over, but if you're bored, why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month? Yeah, you can just scroll down. Scroll down and, yeah, get the link. It's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway... Thanks for sticking around. Take care. Bye.